Thank you so very much, Dr. Burgraff. How I wish I could do what he does. Uh, I can't, but I can certainly appreciate it. You see, he wasn't special music today, along with so many of our people. Whatever it is that's going around is particularly vicious, and our special music today came down sick. And so uh, Dr. Burgraff, of course, can sit down and play anything, anytime, any place that you want him to play. It's fun just to sit around and call music out to him and see him do it. Thank you so much for making that contribution to us today. I tried to think of the appropriate response to Dr. Walker's introduction this morning, and let me say that the only thing I could come up with was oink. And um, so uh, he certainly uh, is correct, though, that uh, uh, there is a collision between the culture and uh, God's Word. And I actually want to speak to you about that this morning in certain ways, but let me begin by presenting it this way. In Russia today, uh, it is culturally acceptable uh, to imbibe as much as you want of the vodka that is available. Well, is that all right, or is that a cultural mistake? They're now suggesting that 81% of all Russians are alcoholics. Unbelievable what happens when the culture is wrong. There are cultures existing particularly in the African uh, continent that mutilate young women early on. Is that a good thing? It's disastrous. It causes all kinds of heartache and pain. It's a cultural acceptably thing, but it is wrong. I have not spoken of American culture because, of course, that's ours, so everything we do is okay. But the truth of the matter is that I have, in the last two days, watched as various people who were born-again believers and who love the Lord acquiesced to the culture to such an extent that they departed from the Word of God and embraced the findings of culture. Now, not all culture is bad, but some of it is, and part of the ability to walk a Christian life is to so inundate yourself with the Word of God that you think God's thoughts after him because our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And if we can come to think about things his way instead of the cultural way, then we will be the recipients of his great blessing. With that in mind, we come to the fourth message in the book of Titus today of 7 and look at chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, speak the things which are proper for healthy doctrine. Namely, that the older men, that would be like I, um, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, in love, and in patience. The older women, we don't have any of those, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, so that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, 
chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young man to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is the opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Now exhort bond servants to be uh, obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering or not taking what is not theirs, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Just about everything in the passage is countercultural. So let's look at what he says uh, to Titus today. First of all, he says that uh, you are to speak the things which are proper for healthy doctrine. Now, you do realize that doctrine is either healthy or unhealthy. There is no in-between. You are either preaching that which brings health and life, or you are preaching that which brings illness and ultimately death. Titus is cautioned that he is not to preach his own findings, so much so as he is to preach healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine is doctrine that, first of all, makes clear the plan of salvation. It is life-giving. It tells people how to have life and then how to have it more abundantly. Healthy doctrine then goes on to talk about those things that really make for happiness and joy. If I had my way, I would ask all of you to read the book of Proverbs until you can memorize it. I tell you, the book of Proverbs could just as well be called happiness and joy. If you were to read the book of Proverbs and inculcate that in your life, you'd be as countercultural as you can possibly be, but you'd be a happy man. It's amazing what a book of the Bible can do and what healthy doctrine can do. Now, specifically, as you proclaim this uh, healthy doctrine, first of all, talk to the older men, the elders, actually, it says here, but here the term is not referring to an office. It's the term that gives the office its significance. Uh, uh, Titus himself was a young man, but he was an elder. Why is that? Because he was to have the gravity associated with the office that would be accorded to an older man. Our social order is far uh, from perfect on this one. When you go to the Orient, when you go to the Far East, you find a culture that uh, is one in which the elderly people are greatly honored. 
and they are reverenced and you wouldn't think of saying anything to an older person that would be uh, a put down and in our society you wouldn't think of doing anything else but saying something that would be a put down and so it's a very different social order than that that was found in the east and found in the bible so older men are first referenced because they have a heavy responsibility to the young they are to be three things, sober, reverent, temperate. They are to do three things. They are to be sound in the faith, sound in love. That's that same word, healthy. Healthy in faith, healthy in love, healthy in patience. Now, I wish I had time to unpack every one of these words because they are especially vivid. I don't have time to, but let me just point out to you that the difference between sobriety and temperance, the word used for temperance there, is the word which includes the mind. They are thoughtful in their minds. They don't jump to conclusions. They reason their way through and find biblical truth to support their position. On the other hand, the first word in the list, uh, which is temperate, reflects their actions. They don't do anything to excess. They have themselves under the control of the Holy Spirit. They are temperate, they're sound in the faith, and in love, and in patience. They're sober, reverent, temperate, sound, healthy in faith, healthy in love, healthy in patience. The word patience, hupomene, in the Greek New Testament, is uh, a word which means to remain under. Meno is to stay, uh, hupo, under. The best way I can tell you is I, I was in Korea one time many years ago, and I looked up and saw a haystack moving along the street. It wasn't what I expected to see because I couldn't see any visible means of locomotion. And yet this haystack was moving down the street. And I thought, well, what is causing that haystack to move down the street? So I ran caught up with the haystack, and I got out on my hands and knees and looked underneath, and sure enough, there were two feet. And this person was completely uh, uh, inundated in that haystack. You couldn't see him at all. And only when you got down very low where he was could you see his feet. He was patient. He was under the haystack. He was down there moving along with it. And that's what a man who is an elderly man is supposed to do. He is to be patient, long-suffering. He remains under the load. Now, older women, should there ever be any of those, likewise, they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Interesting word. Literally, it says, not devils. The word is diabolos. It is the word for devil. Uh, balo is to cast. Dia is through, an accuser. Uh, the, the Bible seems to indicate that Flip Wilson theology is not right. The devil made me do it. Uh, quite to the contrary, a lot of times we do what we do because of the lust of the flesh and that kind of thing. Satan doesn't even have to entice us. We do it to ourselves. But he is devastating as the accuser of the brethren. Accusations hurt. And we're to be reminded that accusations hurt. Before you say something is true of somebody, you better stop and think. 
You better be absolutely sure that it's true, and sometimes even when it's true, nothing is helped by saying it. So elderly women, older women, more mature women, it actually says here, the more mature women are not to be slanderers. You shouldn't be either. Nobody should be a devil and not given to much wine, teachers of good things, so that they may admonish the younger women to uh, philandres. Ah, what an interesting word, philandros. It means to love their husbands and to love their children. Well, isn't that a given? Don't all mothers love their children and love their husbands? Well, no, they don't, but you need to know that this includes the word philos there, one of the words for love. Now, look, be careful about citing Greek and Hebrew words. When you say of a Greek word, this word always means thus and so, what you have just actually told your congregation is you have no idea what you're talking about. Words don't mean something that is always the same. Words mean what they mean in a sentence, and they have a range of lexical possibilities, and you need to, uh, to check that out. And that's true even of the word love, but it is the case that there is something unique about the word for love that most often occurs in Scripture for describing God's love and describing what our love should be for God. And that is uh, the famous word agape. As a matter of fact, in its nominal form, agape, not in its verb form, but its nominal form, we find no instances of agape outside of Holy Scripture. There are seven possibilities, but in every case, the text has been uh, abused, and so consequently, we can't be for sure that it even uses that word. It is conceivable that Paul actually coined the word agape after the verb agapao, which does occur elsewhere in Greek. And if so, it is a word uniquely designed to provide a look at self-sacrificing, other-person-oriented compassion. That's true of agape, not true of very much else. Interestingly, he doesn't use the word agape here. He uses the word phelos. Why would he do that? Well, because usually any mother is going to love her children. She's going to agape her children. She'll be very self-sacrificial about those children, usually. But here it's philandros, which means to highly respect in this particular case. To give the respect necessary to one's children and to one's husband. It's interesting that he uses the word with both children and husband, probably indicating that the husband's behavior is usually pretty childish, like the children, and so she's going to have to work extra hard in order to give respect to her children and to her husband. Furthermore, she is to be discreet, she is to be chaste, her behavior, and her dress. Ladies, hear the word of God. Your choice is whether or not you will look like the world or whether you will look like you belong to God. And so I hope you'll choose the latter, but I see all too many even on seminary campus who don't. 
And so chaste and good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, I've skipped one word there, and I want you to look at it. It's the word homemakers. Homemakers. Hmm. What on earth is that? Well, in the Greek New Testament, it is the word oikurgos. It has the word for home in it, oikos. And it has the word for devoted in it. Devoted to one's home. Now, if you're not angry already, I'm fixing to really get you there. So hang in there. Oikurgos means that the woman has found, the woman who marries has found her ultimate serviceable commitment to God. She is devoted to her home. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong, ladies, for you to have a job. It's fine for you to have a job. As far as I know, if it's a, uh, if it's a good job that does the right thing, it's just fine. God bless you in it. But I am going to tell you today that if the best eight hours of your day are devoted to somebody else, don't tell me that you are faithful to your husband. Don't tell me you're doing with your children what you ought to be doing. The simple truth of the matter is that a woman who is devoted to her home puts her home first above all else, understanding that God has called her to that. Now, you don't have to marry. But if you choose to marry, then you understand that your commitment is to make the home the first place. Now, just for the fun of it, I have arranged today for us to have a seance or two. I have a reputation for that, so why should I not keep it up? So way we call on heaven this morning. Hey, folks up there, is there somebody we could talk to? Uh, yeah, that's good. Monica, I believe is your name, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Monica. Mm. Monica, you were the mother of Augustine. Is that not right? Yeah, she says, I, I was. Well, Monica, um, as the mother of Augustine, uh, could, could we just ask you about this? Because you just poured your whole life into your children and into that boy. You were a brilliant person within your own right. You could have done anything. But when your boy went astray and he became a, a Manichaean, you left your home and followed him to Rome, and then you followed him on to Milan. And all the time, all you were doing was praying, dear God, may my son find Christ. May he be converted. And, and you left everything else in this world just focusing on one thing, the conversion of your son. Monica, don't you wish you had done it differently? You could have had a job. You could have become a, a legal whiz in, in uh, uh, the law profession. You could have become anything you wanted to. And Monica, you spent your life following that wayward boy around asking God to save him. Monica, aren't you sorry that you've spent your life that way? You know what I think she'd say? Do you see all those books over there? Those are all the books my son wrote. 
after he found the Lord. There was not a moment of time on my knees praying for the conversion of my son that was wasted. It was the finest hour anybody ever had. And until this day, Christians in seminaries like yours read the works of my son Augustine. Oh, enough of you. Let's see if we can get somebody else up there. Hey, uh, uh oh, hey, uh, whoa. <laughs> Look at you. Enthusia. Oh, my goodness. It was rumored that you were the most beautiful woman in the uh, Greco-Roman Empire. And your husband died when you were only 19. And you were six months pregnant at the time with your son, John. And, uh, woo, you are beautiful. No wonder you had suitors coming from all over the empire asking for your hand in marriage. Yeah. <laughs> Enthusia, you could have been a fabulously wealthy woman. Why, you, you could have married anybody you wanted to. And, and you told them all no. Why on earth did you tell them all no? You could have been well known throughout the world instead of your name just being known by a few Christians. You know what Enthusia would say? She would say, you see a boy over there? Yeah, who's he? That's my boy, John. John Chrysostom. John, the golden mouth orator of the church, first in Syria and then in Constantinople. The church of the empire, the first Baptist church of Constantinople, right there in the middle of the city. Uh, do you see that boy, John? He was the pioneer after the apostolic age of text-driven preaching. And you folks at Southwestern Seminary have come along and you've just picked up what my son did in response to Origen and all those allegorizers who didn't want to take any of the Bible at face value. John Chrysostom came along and he said the Bible means exactly what it says and now I'm going to tell you what it says and volume after volume after volume of his sermons have been preserved and we read them even today as examples of what a text driven sermon ought to be. Do you think I wasted my time to pour all my life into John Chrysostom? I never could have spent my time any better. Let's try one more. Got to find somebody that had a career. Oh, dear me, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Susanna, you were the 25th child of a poor preacher in England. It's child number 25, fortunately the last of 25, but <laughs> she was 25. Why, by the time your mom and dad had you, they were slap-worn out. <laughs> and uh, they didn't have any hope for you, and nobody had any hope for you. You weren't really expected to live very long, and you lived a quite a long life, Susanna. But you looked pretty tired because you didn't learn anything from your mom and dad. 
You and your husband had 19 children. Makes John Babbler look like a loafer, doesn't it? <laughs> well, 19 children. My goodness, Susanna, you were brilliant. You knew Greek. You knew Hebrew. You knew Latin. And you knew English. Amazing. You even knew some French. And, and, and so, all of these 19 children, you didn't have a time to go after a career. And Susanna, you, you just all time poured your life into children. As a matter of fact, Susanna, it's amazing. You spent one hour a week with each of your children individually. And on top of that, you prayed with them every day. You had some interesting rules. Can I, can I read these to you? Um, she had uh, these rules that she had for her children. Number one, eating between meals is not allowed. Beside the fact that they didn't have any food in the home, so they couldn't eat anyway, but that's right, rule number one. Rule number two, as children, they are to be in bed by 8 p.m., Number three, they are required to take medicine without complaining. Number four, subdue self-willed in a child and those working together with God to save the child's soul. Number five, teach a child to pray as soon as he can speak. Number six, require all to be still, uh, to be still during family worship. Number seven, give them nothing that they cry for and only that which is asked for politely. Number eight, prevent lying, punish no fault, which is first confessed and repented of. Number nine, never allow a sinful act to go unpunished. Mm -hmm. Teaches them a lot about God. Never, number 10, never punish a child twice for a single offense. Number 11, commit and reward um, uh, comment and reward good behavior. Number 12, any attempt to please, even if poorly performed, should be commended. Number 13, preserve property rights, even in smallest matters. Number 14, strictly observe all promises. Number 15, require no daughter to work before she can read well. And number 16, teach children to fear the rod. Those were the principles that she used in rearing children. She said, and I quote, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sight of God, and takes from your thirst for spiritual things or increases the authority of your body over your mind, <laughs> dear me, then that thing to you is evil. By this test that you may detect evil, no matter how subtly or how plausibly temptation may be presented to you. My goodness, you were some kind of woman, Susanna, but you were married to a preacher who couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag, and uh, he wrote one book, and nobody bought the thing, and uh, he was absolutely a miserable failure, Susanna. Why didn't you go get a job? Man, you could, have, you could have worked for the king. You could have done anything in England you wanted to. You were clearly one of the most brilliant women ever. You know what I think Susanna would say? You see that boy over there? That's my boy, John. 
You see a boy over there? That's my boy Charles. If I had 500 lifetimes, I wouldn't do anything else but pour my life into my children. For I made a bigger impact on this world. You don't come even today into an assembly of God's people very long that you don't sing one of my boy's songs. And you read the sermons and the life of my two boys who shook two continents for Jesus Christ. I'd do the same thing 500 more times. Now look, the word oikurgos was a word that was often used to describe a watchdog. Ladies, if you choose to marry, you have no more important assignment than being the watchdog for the home. To help your husband, to help your children, and the whole world will be against what I say. I understand that. I'll get blogged on this afternoon about it. It's fine. Blog on. <laughs> I'm just telling you what God says, okay? So don't argue with me. Argue with him. Tell him, God, you're crazy. You don't know what you're doing about the home. Tell him that. See if he hears you. <laughs> to be discreet, chaste. Oikurgos, keepers of the home, good, obedient to their own husbands, the word of God. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, hard to do when you're drinking, in all things showing yourself to be a, and, and now he's going to talk to Titus, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reference, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing to say about you. You set the example, Titus, and the older men are to, behave in this way, and they're to teach the younger men to behave accordingly. Now we've got two verses left, and I've got to hurry. So look at them. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not taking what is not theirs, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Oh, isn't that a shame that Paul believed in slavery. Well, we know now that in our enlightened age that slavery is a horrible thing. And I just can't believe that Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in slavery. I've got news for you. He didn't believe in slavery. Turn to Philemon. I never say turn to another text when I'm in one, but this is one exception. I want you to see it. In Philemon, just one book over, here it is, verse 8. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten 
here while I was in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now he is marvelously profitable to, to but, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him that is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me and my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for you, from you for a while for this purpose, so that you might receive him ever. Now listen. No longer as a slave... But more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. When Paul had his opportunity, he appealed in behalf of this one who had been a slave, receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ and as my own heart. But Paul couldn't change the condition of slavery in the whole Roman Empire by giving a declamation. So he said, when you find yourself in a situation where you're a slave and there's nothing you can do about it, or when you find yourself working for an obstreperous boss somewhere who abuses you and takes advantage of you and isn't what he ought to be, when you find yourself in any kind of a situation that you don't like, that doesn't mean that you can't be a great witness for Christ. Probably it opens the way. So exhort those who happen to be bond servants, doulos, that is the douloi, the, 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 the regular word for slave, to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing to them in all things, not answering them back. Don't take what doesn't belong to you, showing all good fidelity that they may, that they may adorn the doctrine of God. That word is cosmeo, gives us our word cosmetics, so that they can use the cosmetics that will uh, provide the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, look, there is no way that you're ever going to live in a society, in a social order, where somebody doesn't take advantage of you and abuse you. It's going to happen. Fortunately, in this country, we're not going to be slaves anymore. We finally got rid of that. But while we're not going to be slaves, you're going to have slave-like conditions all your life. And what's the response to that? The Christian response to that is to say, well, I'm already a slave. I'm a voluntary slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to show you by the purity of my life and by the substance of my confession and the faithfulness of all that I do, I'm going to demonstrate for you what it means to be a believer. You know what? The man who wrote Amazing Grace, you know the story came to the point where he could no longer be a traitor of slaves by watching those who were believers and the triumph they had in their lives. We have an obligation 
to live in such a way that we honor God, even though it's contrary to everything the social order calls for. You make up your mind what you will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the word of the Lord. God, it, just about every day I think about how much I'm influenced by the social order. Lord, I'm influenced by it in ways that I don't even realize. Would you help me? Would you help our faculty, assist our staff, be with our students? They may critically examine the social order around them and say, how much have that I've, of that have I imbibed? How much of it do I accept as so, only to find that the word of God is contrary to it? Will I have the courage to do it God's way, even when the world doesn't understand? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.